0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So here we go again. According to everyone in the know, we are back at square one. So despite the lockdown in March, despite the tier systems all over the country from 1 to 3 to 4 to 5, despite the four-week November lockdown, despite the Christmas travel bans, despite the closure of all pubs, restaurants, hotels and events venues, despite the closure of GP surgeries, despite the cancellation of elective surgeries, despite quarantine, despite holiday shutdowns, and despite the shutting of hairdressers, gyms and schools and nail bars and everything else you can think of, uh, garden centers at one point we are back at square one in other words nothing has actually worked for a year so i know what we should do let's do it some more only for longer and let's shut even more businesses so that even more people can't make any money whatsoever let's make sure that the entire economy is crashed and burned into the ground in other words we are completely and utterly uh, in the words of somebody that uh, i can't remember who said it first stucked That's a word we are allowed to say on the radio, uh, other than the one I was thinking about. Uh, Last night, Prime Minister Boris Johnson made yet another speech that he didn't want to make uh, and announced a further national lockdown, shutting schools until mid-February at least and cancelling everyone's plans for doing anything at all, ever. And the worst thing about it all was that it was done first by Nicola Sturgeon and it was suggested first by Sir Keir Starmer. Marvellous, isn't it? We're gonna to have to hear from an awful lot of you today as we try and make sense of this latest piece of desperation strategy, because I kid you not, we are now hearing experts say that lockdowns don't work, but we literally haven't got anything else up our sleeve. We can't do anything else because we don't know what to do. We spoke to Dr. Lawrence Gurlish yesterday, GP from Same Day Doctor, and he was a sole voice of reason on this when he said, we've lost, we cannot stop the virus from spreading. So the best thing to do now is to go after herd immunity. And that means letting people get the virus because it's as good as getting a vaccination. Vaccinate as many people as you possibly can, uh, but also protect the vulnerable, which is what we've always said right from the very beginning. Up first, uh, we'll hear from John Rental, chief political commentator from The Independent. Then we are joined by Baroness Howie from Northern Ireland with her view uh, on what's going on around the country, but also the Brexit deal and the future of the civil service as well. Plus, Andrew Allison from the Freedom Association will be here as well. And there's plenty to discuss when it comes to freedom particularly freedom of expression 0344 499 1000 also coming up uh, dr rakiba sand will join us from the henry jackson society with his take on a bad year for race relations and what his hopes are for 2021 you're listening to me mike graham right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio We are streaming live on Facebook and Twitter right now. So if you want to watch us, that's where you need to do it. But we also want to hear from you as well, because there's an awful lot of things to discuss. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's go straight to John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Very happy New Year to you, John. Good morning, Mike. Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It doesn't quite feel as if we're back in March, although a lot of the papers this morning are saying we are back at square one. I've taken the usual barometer uh, of public opinion uh, by asking what's going on out there. And I'm being told that there is plenty of loo roll in the supermarkets. Therefore, uh, I've have de- deduced that we are not in quite such a bad place as we were then. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we, uh, when we
2: went into tier four in uh, London and the southeast, uh, I thought there might be another. Another spate of uh, panic buying. But I think everybody bought all the loo roll they could possibly need in March. So uh, they're they're still living on squirrelled away supplies. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I mean, in many ways, uh, lockdown three is different from uh, lockdown two and from lockdown one. Uh, And uh, it's responding to the new variant of of coronavirus. I mean, that's, that's what's changed. Uh, so uh, it's very difficult to see, as you as you said in your introduction, it's very just difficult difficult to see an alternative to the uh, the policy the prime minister's uh, announced yesterday. The only question is why he didn't do it earlier.
1: Well, that's the trouble. You see, now it's starting to sound like Keir Starmer now, because that's the thing that Keir Starmer keeps saying until this week for the first time he actually asked for it before it happened, uh, rather than asking for it to have been done earlier when it did happen. But the bottom line surely is that if they've taken the view as now an awful lot of very distinguished medical experts have done, and I was listening to quite a few of them on all sorts of radio stations this morning, they're all absolutely in agreement that the lockdowns haven't worked um they they take different views of why they haven't worked well no because they clearly haven't worked john i mean there's no point pretending they have worked because they have not stopped the spread of the virus which is what they well, were intended yeah, they, to do They
2: did they, no they reduced the spread of the virus at the time uh but they couldn't eliminate i'm not it sure that they
1: did i don't think you can say that with any accuracy
2: well you can't you can't say that with with certainty that is true yeah thank but you but uh, certainly, the first the first wave uh, did uh, did abate, uh, and we spent most of the summer with very low levels of the virus. Yeah. Uh, the second lockdown in November did coincide with a reduction in the uh, level of infections. Uh, whether that was cause and effect, you know, you you can yes, argue but in both
1: cases, that, in but- both cases, there has been an argument to be made that the the level of infections was already dropping before the lockdown began. Yes, uh,
2: that is true, but it does look. I mean, it looks to me as if the as if both those lockdowns did have some some effect. I mean, or at least the changes of behaviour, possibly not not necessarily directly related to government measures, but the changes of behaviour certainly did uh, did reduce the spread. Now the question is whether the, I mean this new variant uh, variant spreads spreads faster, uh, and you know there must be a question mark over whether whether this lockdown will be enough. Yeah contain it. And I I suspect it won't. But so we're back in the we're back in the situation in in March where the aim of policy is to is to squash the sombreros is to is to uh, reduce the spread of the virus as as much as possible, postpone cases as much as possible until we can be rescued by the vaccines.
1: Well, that's true. However, um, we are supposed to have been rescued by the vaccine since the vaccines were brought in. And so far, ever since they've been brought in, things have got worse. Uh, and so you have to say, well, I mean, I spoke to a GP yesterday, Dr. Lawrence Gurlis, a, a regular guest on this show, uh, who is about as mainstream as you get, who has, was always telling me that he had seen no new cases of COVID back in September and October. He then said he started to see an increase in November. He says that this new strain is so um, uh, spreading, is spreading so ridiculously fast that we might as well hold our hands up and admit that we have lost the battle to stop it spreading because we can't stop it spreading. So his belief is that we need I to didn't... have new strategy.
2: No, I don't know. Well, I don't know what his new strategy is. I don't I don't agree with that. You can. I mean, we may not be able to do it. Yeah. Surely
1: surely you're going to agree with the experts. Well, what's his proposal? His proposal is that you protect the vulnerable in the same way. But actually, uh, you allow those people who are coming. The reason he knows it's spreading so fast is because people are coming into his clinics for tests and they are being tested and testing positive. However, they are not sick. OK, so his view is right. if you are young uh, and you are not likely to be adversely affected to any ma- major extent, uh, herd immunity will become a thing if many more people actually get it.
2: Oh, I see. Well, yeah, but that's that. That is the strategy. That is what uh, what the government is aiming yes, for exactly. with, with the vaccine. But in the meantime, it wants to it wants to suppress the spread as much as possible um, among among the population. But it's not working, but is it not? Well, it, it is. Well, you don't know what the alternative, what would what would be happening if we hadn't got restrictions in place. Well, if you were talking any um, in any
1: in any, about anything else, John, you would accuse me of being an absolute lunatic if on the one hand I said to you, we are suppressing the virus. Oh, but look, all the infection rates are going through the roof. How are you suppressing no, but- the virus if the infection rates are going through the roof?
2: Because they might be going even higher <laughs> if it weren't for the restrictions that are in you place. You do know especially. what the word
1: suppress means. It means, you know, keeping it down, not allowing it to go up. With me, or
2: it means keeping it down below what it would otherwise be. I if see. If you didn't have restrictions in place. I see. That is not not a difficult concept, Mike. And well, the, you're. And well, problem,
1: I mean, I'm quite happy if you want to reinvent the, uh, the, the definition of words, but it's not suppressing no, no. something means keeping it down, not allowing it to go up.
2: No but the problem with what you and your doctor friend are are, are arguing you're not my friend is that you're, well, you're essentially you're essentially <laughs> suggesting that uh, that we should allow the the nhs to be overwhelmed now, no no that you
1: see that's entirely wrong and i'm not going to accept that because that is absolute not a rubbish right i'm not saying that the nhs should be overwhelmed i'm saying that people who get it who don't get sick are not going to be a problem to the NHS, and that's his
2: view. Well, they are going to be a problem. No, Mike, because they are going to spread it to people who will get sick.
1: Not necessarily.
2: Well, well, you say that. (laughs) What's your evidence? Well, I mean, mean,
1: if they've already got it, they might be spreading it anyway. Well, yes,
2: but you want to reduce that as much as possible because you want to reduce the number of people who are getting it. By by, by
1: doing what? Stopping them going to a supermarket or allowing them to go to a supermarket?
2: By restricting social mixing as much as possible. Uh, I mean, that is that's the government. That is the government's policy. And I can't see a better policy uh, out there uh, that makes sense to me. I think uh, I think we've got to aim for, as you say, herd immunity in the sense that we are aiming to vaccinate uh, the vulnerable. But there is going to be a gap between between now and then. And there always was going yes. to be.
1: But, the but, idea herd, that but, but, but herd immunity can, can work, be achieved in, in two ways, can't it? it? Sorry, carry on. Sorry, herd immunity can be achieved in two ways. And why not meet in the middle where you get some herd immunity coming from people getting vaccinated and coming from the other side? You get other people getting herd immunity by having got the disease, not getting sick and then getting better. Well, because a lot of people will die doing it that way. A lot uh, of people are already dying, apparently. Yeah, but more
2: people might die, Mike. Right. I mean, this is not difficult. No, I know it's not difficult. All right, well, let's, let's, is, let's uh,
1: move away uh, from, from, from the fear factor and talk about the rest of the country, which is currently suffering. We had a guy on this show, uh, on this radio station yesterday, in absolute floods of tears, right? He runs a taxi business um, somewhere, I think he's up in Lincolnshire. We're going to hear his audio a little bit later on. His, yeah. his business is down the toilet. He's got five kids. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He sounded... At the end of his tether, and he's not the yeah. only one. We're getting lots of calls like that, John. And I think the yeah, point has now no, come. The point has now come where it's not good enough just to say, "Well, we can't think of anything else to do, so we'll just ruin everybody else's lives, even if they haven't got the disease." Something has to. Some middle ground surely has to be found.
2: Yeah, and that, but that middle ground is called is is called vaccinating as many people as possible uh, in the in the next few weeks, and that is that is what the government is 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 trying to do. And I just think you know you can go back and say, well, you should have done things differently. You should have closed the borders. And uh, I mean, there's a load of people
1: flying into London Airport today.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I I think I think I think uh, you could argue that stricter measures should have been taken taken earlier but i mean that that in a in a sense is against your argument that we should just allow it to to spread in the population generally and try to protect the it's vulnerable not my say, argument it's, a, it's like an there,
1: argument from which a I, general practitioner is, who knows more about this than either of us
2: well possibly but i just don't it, he, he sounds like a minority view to me i mean i think most of the scientists think it's
1: not possible. well you've got a minority but, view on brexit it doesn't mean you can't be heard does it
2: well i don't know about my view on brexit i was oh, okay I was pretty... sorry
1: i thought you were remainer
2: well i wasn't i was a very reluctant remainer no, i think okay. I, I i was right right in the middle of the british people actually so somewhere i yeah. understood the case for leaving yeah. anyway that's that is a separate separate argument i do not think there are many people uh with with scientific um expertise who argue that we should allow the uh, allow coronavirus to to to, uh, to to let rip.
1: Well, funnily uh, enough, they used to make that. I- they used to make that argument at the start of the pandemic, didn't they? Many of the government advisers who are still no. advising the government used to say that herd immunity no. was something they wanted to achieve.
2: Well, no, it was something that was going to be achieved at some point eventually, and the, and the question was, could they slow down the spread of the virus while it was while it was inevitably spreading, uh, in order to protect the NHS? Now that is a very different argument. Uh, and we're, but we're sort of back to that argument now, and and the question is, do you just allow it to uh, to, to continue to increase exponentially? And you've all, everybody's seen those graphs of hospitalizations uh, and cases, uh, or do you try to reduce that uh, that level of that increase uh, in order to try and uh, preserve the capacity of the NHS mm. while we wait for the vaccines to to come on stream?
1: How surprised will you be when we speak in a month's time, you and I, John, and I say to you? Well, looks like that didn't work either, because the increase in uh, spreading of this disease is so vast and so um, impossible to stop that we might as well not have done anything.
2: No, I don't. Well, I think that's unlikely to happen. I think I think what could happen, which would be very bad, would be further mutations of the virus, uh, which allow it to spread even faster or to become more uh, 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 uh more vicious i mean to become more well this effective. particular one
1: this particular one is not supposedly any more dangerous than the last one is it
2: no but i mean other mutations could uh could could go off in a different direction so we could
1: be we could be well, doing this for the rest of our lives then
2: and the south african uh, uh variant um might be uh it might require completely different vaccines and that that is that is very alarming um, so, you know, things could could go badly wrong. Uh, and you're right. If, if if that happens, then we'll have to have to reconsider the strategy. But at the moment, I don't see I don't see an alternative to what the government is doing. I can see lots of alternatives that could have been pursued over the past year. Uh, but I'm not sure that people were arguing Uh, sufficiently credibly for them at the time.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And I think it's very clear to me that since, say, for example, July, when the weather was rather nice, more and more people were out and about than there ever have been in the last two months. And yet... Um, there's yeah. been a massive spike in the last two months, which didn't happen in July, which didn't happen yeah. in August and which didn't really happen in September either. So there's clearly something else going on as well. It's not just about people mingling, because when people were mingling on Bournemouth Beach and when people were mingling in BLM marches and when people were mingling uh, in all sorts of pub and restaurant situations, the, 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 the cases did not increase at all.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a very there's, there's a difference between mingling outside and mingling uh, in indoors. And I think that's 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 there's also there's
1: also a big difference between NHS availability of beds in the wintertime and in the summertime. And uh, as, as I'm sure you've seen uh, over the course of the last two, three weeks, people have been uh, posting all kinds of uh, stories about the NHS in crisis, which has pretty much been every year that I can remember.
2: Yeah. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, one of the one of the decisions that there could be criticised is the failure to uh, to increase NHS capacity. Uh, well, they've
1: decreased the, it as well, haven't they? Because of social distancing in the wards, they've actually got thirteen thousand fewer beds in the NHS in England than they had this time last year.
2: Well, yeah. except that they, but yeah, but they've also built the the Nightingales. I mean, yeah, but I they're not that using
1: that, them though. Why are they not using them?
2: Well, because staffing is the is is the constraint, and I think they haven't done enough to uh, to to deal with that. But I mean, I think to go, I mean, to go back to your point about the summer and and the fact that you know life. Return to some kind of normal for a period. Uh, that does underline to me the fact that we don't really understand how this how this yeah. disease works. No, and, um, I think, and I think we've, very we
1: finally, as ever, as we always do, John, we finally landed upon a piece of shared and agreed um, uh, policy. But the bottom line surely is that now that we can admit that we don't understand it, is it really worth ruining so many businesses, ruining so many people's lives? Let's not forget, you know, the furlough scheme works for uh, a lot of people, but not for everyone. There are still three million what? people who haven't made any money whatsoever since last March. Freelancers, company directors uh, who don't get qua- don't get any qualifications.
2: I couldn't agree more and and you know I, I thought it was I thought it was wrong to have closed down schools um uh, last year I thought that was that was a, that had a terrible effect on a whole generation uh, of uh, of children and I think it's an absolute tragedy that we're having to do that do that again but I do not see the I mean, com, I mean last year I think that was the wrong policy but I mean I just do not see an alternative to it now when you have the the prospect of vaccines coming uh, by the middle of next month, uh, to the extent that we we'll, we should be able to ease some of the restrictions uh, then uh, without putting uh, thousands and thousands of people's lives at risk. And I think that's, you know,
1: that's an inescapable choice. I think the biggest problem we've had in this whole pandemic scenario, John, uh, is that basically we have never got to the point where the government have said we will get to. Every promise that they have made, I'm afraid they have ended up not having to keep. Because in the end, yeah. you know, they've been far too optimistic. Um, I mean, even last night, Boris Johnson was talking about, you know, sun sunlight at the end of the hill or something like that. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I don't know why I keep saying stuff like that, because everything they said would happen at a certain time hasn't happened. You know, when we got the first vaccine, that was going to be a game changer. Well, all, the only thing that's happened is that more people have been infected and more people have been now locked down. No,
2: no. But I mean, the vaccine is a game changer. Uh, is All, it? all the vaccines are game changers and they will change the game but it will take time I mean I don't think the government is guilty of uh, of, 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 of over optimism on that except that of course as i say you know further mutations might uh, might complicate that picture but you're quite right i mean boris johnson uh, has got away with uh, over optimistic uh, projections uh, before uh, but you know for a long time in the summer that did appear to be justified and i was with you then I thought I thought we ought to we ought to open up the economy hmm. uh, as as quickly as we we possibly could, and I I criticised the government for delaying uh, in the summer. But then the the picture changed quite sharply in August and September, and I think
1: uh, well, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt. I think, think we can have, we can we can changed, happily say changed. we can happily say that letting all the students go back to university was the most ridiculous idea anybody ever had.
2: Well, No, I, do, I don't agree with that. I think well, I that's think where society, the spread came from. Futures are not taken
1: away from them. Well, what about people who have businesses? Why can you take their future away from them?
2: Well, because you have to. I mean, it, oh, OK, it, it, so they can
1: have their futures taken away, but the kids can't.
2: Well, young people are having their futures taken away from them, Mike. I mean, that's the that's the terrible thing. Uh, everybody is 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 suffering from this. This is not a good. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, but, but if you were if, if you were to be fa-
1: but if you were to be fair, John, surely the whole point of all of this would be to have as few people suffer as possible. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, yeah. it seems as though the maximum number of people are suffering. No. Many of whom no, that, shouldn't be suffering.
2: That is absolutely not true, Mike. I mean, look, we, I mean, in the summer, Rishi Sunak quite rightly prioritised the hospitality business with his Eat Out to Help Out scheme which was a which was a terrific scheme saved a lot of uh, saved a lot of businesses and jobs uh, but it does appear to have had consequences in terms of spreading the uh,
1: I don't it, I don't is, agree with I, that there's no evidence that suggests that's true absolutely none well uh,
2: there is not, not sure
1: you've just explained yeah. to me on the one hand nobody really knows how it spreads now you're telling me that it's No it was there, no, 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 that's,
2: no that's not what I said Mike. I think there's a lot of evidence of how it spreads it, sp- it spreads by human contact in in indoor uh, settings and we we know that so we know that it spreads in restaurants and pubs uh and indoor indoor gatherings we know uh, we also know that it doesn't spread outside which is why i think all that ridiculous stuff about beaches uh was just people was was just public hysteria but we do know that it spreads uh, indoors we knew, we knew that risks were being taken with with opening up hospitality in the summer uh, i think that that was that was a worthwhile risk to take uh, but it probably did have consequences in increasing the spread of the virus. But
1: you don't think opening up the the halls of residence for students did that either?
2: Yeah, well, of course it did. Well, I, th- I think said. opening schools allowed the allowed the virus to spread. Yeah. In any case, I think we were balancing uh, the you know p- p- the, the the need for education, the need to keep the economy going. Against the risks of spreading the virus. And I think uh, I think those were justifiable risks at the the time. Everything changed on the 18th of December when we we discovered the new variant, which spreads, um, you know, 50 percent faster. And that that really does uh, make things much, much more
1: difficult. It does. But it's not uh, uh, the the job of us to work these things out, John. Uh, We should only advise uh, the government, but I think making a bit of a hash of it at the moment. John, thanks very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Uh, We usually agree on a couple of things, which we did. Uh, We disagree on an awful lot of the rest of it.
3: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Let's talk to Claire Bailey, though, independent retail expert, author of The Retail Champion. A very happy new year to you, Claire. And you, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I wanted to talk to you because you and I kind of have relatively regular conversations about how (laughs) things are on the old high street. I mean, after what Mm -hmm. happened just before Christmas, um, when we were expecting billions and billions of pounds to be spent, um, what actually happened? Did people spend the money that the the shops needed them to spend or is it all a bit uh, of a disaster?
0: I I think the latter, to be fair. Mm. I mean, people did spend... But in the main, they were very nervous. The news was breaking about a strain that was much more uh, prevalent. People were being moved into this new tier four. And I think that led to a level of nervousness within consumers. The footfall data is still coming through. that tier four locations were 70% down on the previous year, according to some early stats I've seen from springboard research. And that, of course, impacts spending. Because particularly with the sales, it's often a lot of impulse. You see something you like and it's discount and you buy it, you don't go looking for it on purpose. Um, Sales do okay online, but I I think generally people were just very nervous. And as of last night, of course, with the announcement that we're now in a national lockdown, The, the businesses will be quite distressed. Having said that, uh, we've had the breaking news that the packages of support available to businesses in the last few minutes and they are better than they were for those forced to close in tier three and four. So hopefully that should give some comfort to retail hospitality and leisure.
1: Yeah, we were expecting something from Rishi Sunak. So so mm. is that reasonably something that, that, that will help people What until the end of April or something?
0: Uh, Well, certainly for the time being, it looks like it's a respectable amount. The smallest businesses are receiving a £4,000 grant and the larger ones up to £9,000. That's based on their rateable values. And um, that covers retail, hospitality and leisure and all those are forced to close. Those who remain open, of course, aren't getting anything, but then they're allowed to trade. Uh, I think that uh, I met a number of businesses in tier three and in tier four who felt that um, they were grateful in a way to have moved from three to four because they were losing that much money Mm. by being open. But by seeing so few customers who were reluctant to spend that to get the closed grant, even though for smaller businesses, it was only 1300 pounds or so a month. Uh, they were better off than opening for business, which was quite a sad situation, really.
1: Yes, I know. I spoke to publicans who had a similar kind of experience mm. who were in tier two, who were allowed to have people yes. in, but they could only come win one at a time or something. So they were like, we'd, yeah, rather, be, we'd, ra- yeah, and, we'd rather be yeah. in tier three, uh, where and we can actually money. just shut and get the money. That's right. Yeah. But I mean, as far as the kind of uh, closures that are going to happen now, since yesterday's announcement by Boris mm. Johnson, I mean, I was struggling last night to work out mm what it was that was actually going to be different because non-essential shops were already shut anyway in, in, in most places tier I suppose four, yeah. um, I, and, I, and I, I guess selfishly because I'm in tier four I just assume everybody else is Um mm-hmm. But then also 78%
0: of us were, I think. Well, that's right. Pretty significant.
1: That's right. Um, And and garden centres are still open, which seems a bit odd to me since it's a funny time of year to go to a garden centre anyway. Um, But they can obviously sell. I mean, there's a garden centre near me uh, which sells all manner of stuff. I mean, they sell a bit of food. They've got a cafe. Mm. uh, They sell boots. They sell, you know, plates. They sell all kinds of stuff.
0: Well, this was the big argument, and we had some wranglings about this before. I think Wales took the lead with supermarkets to actually cordon off whole aisles that sold what might be classified as non-essential, so that those businesses, for example, if you were just a small independent electrical business, mm. but your local Tesco's or whoever was selling kettles and toasters, but you're not allowed to, that seems unfair. Yeah. So I know that in Wales there was a lot of a, a sort of a a movement to cut off the aisles in supermarkets where these things were being sold. So garden centres have always been something that causes a lot of contention as they do sell things like candles and gifts and all sorts of other things. And small businesses are told, you can't open, but they can and they can sell these products. So I think it's one of those that falls between the cracks, unfortunately. But you mentioned what's different to Tier 4. For the businesses... Not much, Mm. but then obviously we're adding to the fact that people are being told to stay at home and that the schools are closed. For for tier four, it's only a small difference to us. The the shops can still do click and collect, which is a difference to the March lockdown and a a benefit to them in many respects, as long as they can offer it securely. Um, But otherwise, yes, it's more or less the same for those in tier four.
1: Okay, Claire, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Claire Bailey, independent retail expert, author of The Retail Champion. Mid-Morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us say, first of all, a very good morning and a happy new year to Dr. Rakeem Hassan. Rakeeb, a very good morning to you.
3: Morning, Mike, and a happy new year to you too.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Nice to see you. Uh, great to have you back on the show. We're looking forward to 2021 being slightly better than 2020, if we can possibly make it so. Uh, you've written a couple of really interesting pieces uh, over the last couple of weeks, one for The Telegraph about you know, how race relations was really damaged over the course of last year. Um, tell us why uh, you think that was the case and, and tell us what you think we need to do
3: to improve things this year. Well, I think that 2020, Mike, we saw the wave of Black Lives Matter demonstrations, which commanded support across uh, various spheres of British life, ranging from politics to sport. But there was a recent poll conducted by Opinion, which showed that 55% of the British public believed that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement had heightened racial tensions. And uh, the pieces that you've uh, mentioned there, I discussed that concepts such as white privilege, while they may have gained uh, popularity in certain circles, they're deeply unhelpful if we are hoping to make improvements in terms of race relations in the UK Mm, Exactly right because
1: you know words like white privilege started to get bandied about didn't they and we saw uh, in all kinds of settings from academia uh, to media to uh, just individual organisations saying that you know they were going to have to improve their diversity which is no bad thing I think most of us would agree that that's a worthy kind of aim to have but to tell people who are white that somehow uh, they are more Privilege than everybody else, no matter where they come from, no matter what
3: their background is. It's just simply wrong, isn't it? Well, I'd make the point that all too often white privilege is being presented as fact by an admittedly small but also influential uh, clique, you could say, of culturally liberal activists, which span various spheres of British life. But I consider it, Mike, to be a pseudo intellectual theory. Uh, If, to be told, I look at cases, for example, when we're looking at uh, certain cases of systematic, large-scale child sexual abuse, Mm. where you had police officials prioritising racial sensitivities over justice and public safety, cases which involved white British girls and non-white men, then you have to question the usefulness of white privilege when it comes to interpreting uh, those kind of issues in modern-day Britain and when we look at these white in uh, rather woke intersectional frameworks where being a white male is considered to be a position of hyper privilege but when you look at the educational outcomes you see that white working class boys are falling some way behind Hmm. um, especially in areas where the education system is fundamentally under-resourced and crumbling. Yes. So I question the usefulness of white privilege when you
1: look at those kind of issues. Well, quite. Ben Bradley MP's been very good on this. He's talked a lot about it, uh, both on uh, in Parliament and also he's written pieces for newspapers about it as well. And I mean, you're, you're uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's giving anything away to say that you're uh, living in a certain part of, of this country which is known for uh, a mixed race, col- you know, sort of um, collection of people in, in a community, but also quite sure. a big white work working class base. And you'd have to say that the white working class people who come from where you live um, have not got great prospects for the future uh, in terms of what jobs they can get, in terms of uh, their social mobility, you know, um, and you might argue that in in your community um, they're actually the worst
3: off. Well, Mike, I I really make the point that we have post-industrial coastal communities which are predominantly white they've suffered decades of economic decline and cultural exclusion as well and when when we're looking at, you know, I I think the main problem here when we're looking at contemporary uh, debates surrounding equality, I almost feel that, you know, that race is overemphasised that racial identity sexual identity this is given a disproportionate amount of attention Mm. when in reality when we look at the crucial factors important influences on life chances uh, one's chances of progressing in life uh, things such as for example belonging to a stable family unit uh being part of a supportive local community things which i feel have actually been eroded in the white british mainstream but which are firmly embedded in successful ethnic minority groups such as british indians these these kind of uh, these kind of factors are almost seen as unfashionable mike Mm. talking about the value of a stable family unit is seen as old-fashioned and reactionary and i think that's really holding back the equality debate in our country Yes,
1: and we've also had the other famous word that kind of, I suppose, popped up in 2020, which was misappropriation, cultural misappropriation. We saw it probably more in America than we did here, but it was a bit of it here as well. What do you make of all of that? And has it sort of slightly gone away a
3: little bit now? Well, I, I think for me, Mike, it won't come as any surprise to you. I just think it's a complete distraction. Uh, I, I think I think it's, it's generally a lot of the time it's a, it's a load of nonsense. Right. I think that when we're focusing on the... UK. As you say, the, it's, uh, it's talked about a fair bit in the United States. What I'm uh, particularly keen on seeing is these kind of uh, US style culture war politics not being imported into the UK. But unfortunately I feel that left-wing activists, and I think a fine example is that when you look to uh, certain BLM protests uh, where, where uh, demonstrators were shouting at the police, don't shoot, Uh, in in the British context. It tells you how silly uh it was almost a misapplication of US cultural politics in the British setting.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, as I said, I think if, if the end of the 2020 12 months uh, resulted in a lot of um, young um, men and women from ethnic minorities getting better placements in work situations, getting better education opportunities, then I'm all for that. I think everybody would be. Um, but I wouldn't certainly do it at the expense of anybody else.
3: It doesn't need to be that way, does it? No, absolutely. I think that ultimately, when I look at uh, matters of inequality, Mike, firstly, I think there's great inequality between the regions. Yeah. I think that's a result of having a political and economic model, which is very much London centric. So we we do have a economic and political settlement, which is dominated by an individual city region. Yeah. So I would like to see, uh, I'd like to see wealth and opportunity spread more evenly across the regions. I also feel that it's almost unfashionable to talk about class-based barriers now. Mm. There's there's, uh, such a strong emphasis on race. We really should be focusing more on how we can enhance social mobility in working class communities, irrespective of the racial composition in those. Yes. In I think that's
1: absolutely spot on because I've said this many times about places like the BBC, Um, you know, the BBC in its aim to become more diverse has hired more people from ethnic minorities, but they haven't hired anyone from the working classes of any colour whatsoever. If you walk into Broadcasting House in London, you will not find any white working class kids and you will not find any uh, Asian working
3: class kids or Indian working class kids or black working class kids. And I certainly make the point, Mike, when it comes to the contemporary British left which used to, it would have no hesitation in terms of talking about class. Now it doesn't want to touch it with a barge pole. No. It's far more comfortable talking about uh, gender recognition, racial identity, sexual orientation. And unfortunately, social class is being left by the wayside when it comes to contemporary debates of uh, inequality, in the british left and i think that's hugely problematic
1: it is and much of it is led as well by these kind of um what i call faux academics right you spoke in your latest piece to spike online about halima begum head of the runnymede trust which is a race equality think tank whatever that means um and she's accused supposedly uh, the tory government of having a white nationalist agenda i mean this has to be i would have thought um one of the most eth- ethnically diverse governments we've ever had in this country
3: Well, I think think, uh, Halima Begum there, who's the head of Runnymede Trust, I think what she came out with there was nonsense on stilts, Mm. if I'm being perfectly honest, Mike. I think the idea that we have a white uh, nationalist administration running the country, I think it's actually deeply disrespectful when it comes to genuine victims of racial nationalism. White nationalism is ultimately uh, an ideology which puts forward the view that uh, national identity is rooted in race. Mm. So you can only, in, in this case, from this perspective, uh, you could only be considered British if you're white. No n- no, repre- no representative of the government has come up with such a statement. Yeah. We have an administration where an Indian origin home secretary created a bespoke immigration route for millions of pe- Hong Kong residents who wish to flee from Chinese state oppression, and if they wish to start a new life in the UK. Doesn't sound like white nationalism to me, Mike. Well, it really doesn't. And it doesn't look like white nationalism either, does it? And what about the whole kind of a fallout
1: for 2021 of the Black Lives Matter movement? Because obviously there have been many arguments, some um, legitimate, some not legitimate, about the organisation itself. Many people feel that, um, you know, it's a Marxist organisation. It's now applied for political status, political party status, which I think will be a big uh, sort of change maker for them. Because if they get party political status, that will cut them off for all kinds of possible funding. It will cut them off from uh, any sort of access they might have otherwise had to the media because it will have to be more balanced, you know. And I wonder what, what happens to the movement as such because it's still filled with people Um, who have this very Marxist agenda about uh, destroying capitalism and tearing down the economy and all of that. And yet on the the sort of fringes, it's a little bit more moderate. It's more about diversity. It's more about inclusion and all of that. Where do you think that's going to go in the next 12 months?
3: Well, I think that in terms of the BLM uh, social movement, we discussed this fairly early on last year that I felt that it was, uh, it's a radical neo-Marxist political movement, Mm. which was quite, it was quite amazing to see the Premier League, which is a a fundamentally hyper-capitalist enterprise, Essentially, allowing in, in the neo-Marxist movement to get the level of airtime that it did, yeah. uh, for example, on Sky Sports, yeah. it's quite remarkable, really. I think, in terms of the, the the narratives, the pro-BLM narratives, I think it's good to see that members of uh, certain members of the government pushing back against it. And I think that w- when we're looking at matters of inequality, as I said, I think we need to look at more matters of uh, social class, how that is. Uh, how that uh, in terms of how that is a barrier to social mobility mm. i think that when we're looking at you know, when we're looking at ideologically motivated movements we have to see what kind of impact it might have on social cohesion i think ultimately if you want to improve matters of race uh, racial equality in the uk it needs to be inclusive mm. and all too often i've heard uh, identitarian Identitarian leftist narratives, for example, saying that white people can experience racism right. in the UK. I couldn't think of anything worse and that could possibly undermine the anti-racism movement more than saying that the, mm. large, the majority of the population can't even experience racism on the basis of their racial identity. Mm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm just watching Rishi Sunak as we speak, announcing the changes for the the subsidies that people are going to get now that we're going into a national lockdown. Another example um, of a very successful British um, uh, Asian man um, who could not be more successful, I
3: think, if he tried. Well, I think that's the key thing for me with the anti-racism movement. Stick to the bread and butter issues. Mm. There's Labour market discrimination faced by ethnic minorities. Let's combat that. Uh, In terms of creating a more responsive uh, national health service to the diversity of public health needs, we have in modern day Britain. For uh, maybe when it comes to ethnic minority communities, especially younger people, how we can, for example, boost their level of uh, political trust, the level of trust in political institutions but what i well the problem i have with movements such as blm like they don't even want to discuss that they're not interested in discussing labor market discrimination because they fundamentally want to overthrow the entire capitalist system yeah so i think i think and i think the one thing i would say when it comes to um anti racism activists stick to the bread and butter and don't get distracted and uh, crucially try and build coalitions Try and uh, hear people's points of view as opposed to automatically going to go to terms such as racist mm. whenever you hear something that you might not like on matters of equality. Sure. And finally, uh, Dr. Rakeeb,
1: you've spoken to me a lot about uh, Brexit in the past and how Brexit is not simil- simply a, uh, a sort of a, a holding pen for white racist people who want to leave the European Union. An awful lot of minority ethnic people voted for Brexit. Uh, are they happy with uh, the deal
3: that has come across the table? Well, Mike, I would never possibly think that I could speak for every single non-white uh, Brexit here in the UK. <laughs> certainly not. Uh, so certainly go against that kind of identity politics. What I would say, though, I, think I, I still think it's a problem that you have uh, certain members of the pro-Remain movement or was it pro-rejoin, Mike? Whatever right, it is you know, now, yeah. Uh, Whatever it is. Still continuing to portray Brexit as some sort of white nostalgic exercise. Yeah. When you had places such as my hometown of Luton, Slough, uh, Bradford, Hillingdon, Osterley and Spring Grove in Hounslow, uh, with with, with notable South Asian populations, all all of these areas delivered leave votes Mm. back in June 2016. And I I really, I, I think it's a crying shame that people keep on trying to frame Brexit as a white nationalist uh, enterprise, Mm. uh, or white nationalist enterprise, you could say, when really it's anything but. Right, absolutely.
1: Dr. Rukiba San, as ever, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. He's from the Henry Jackson Society, the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism. Mid-morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Time to say a very good afternoon, a very happy new year uh, to Baroness Hurry. Kate, very good afternoon to you.
4: Good afternoon, happy New Year to to you. And I loved your tie yesterday.
1: <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. I mean, many people did funnily enough, and it, you don't get very many um, opportunities to wear the old Union Jack tie. So I, I just thought it would be very nice. Now it looks to me as if you're uh, in a very splendid spot there, uh, over in uh, in Rathlin in Ireland.
4: Well, I'm an, I'm on Rathlin Island, so it's very easy to socially distance here. Uh, I think the only the only thing that you have to keep Weary of or the local hares um, <laughs> keep well away from them but are they quite large very cold and very windy but very
1: lovely yes brilliant stuff now i see from your um uh, people are very confused i think about what happened last night with boris johnson because i see from your uh, twitter that garden centers in northern ireland are closed but they're not closed in england and i was saying to somebody earlier today most garden centers that i go to sell a great many things you know it seems unfair that they're allowed to stay open when nobody else is
4: well, I, th- I think there's, a, there's unfairness right throughout the whole thing. You know, it, it really annoys me that some of the big supermarkets can still sell books and clothes and things, yet little specialist shops have to close. Mm. And yet they're probably safer because they can organise very, very well just one or two people in at once. But garden centres really does seem to me, you know, fresh air and, and being outdoors is definitely a way of, you know, making the virus less likely to attack you. Mm. So I, I don't understand why garden centres aren't, aren't aren't open. But then the whole the whole rationale across the United Kingdom with four different uh, regimes really um, has made the whole thing so confusing and I think that's helped to make the message you know of staying at home and all the things that went on early on very very much more difficult because every part of the United Kingdom is different and I think that's that's not been helpful.
1: No well you guys in Northern Ireland have been in a pretty fierce lockdown really for quite a long time haven't
4: you? Yes, we've we've really been locked down um, apart from schools. Uh, well, of course, the schools were closed over the Christmas and New Year period anyway, and now they were to open uh, next week. But I think that's probably going to be announced today. Um, it, it seems to me almost like a you know every every uh, part of every government of of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland they all want to sort of keep up with each other, uh, and sometimes you wonder is it just a question of who wants to be first to be the most uh look like they're being the, the toughest uh i mean the problem for me on the, on the lockdown is that it really doesn't seem as if it worked or worked very well um mm. you know wh- wh- what more can boris johnson be announcing today what more can we lock down yeah. there was that little tweet of somebody walking along covered in a you know, a, a tent yes. with on the on the side with a little hole saying, um, you know, tier five. Mm. So are we are we going to just keep trying to flatten the curve by flattening the whole? country and that's, well, that's right
1: i mean i thought very, that i must admit i i thought that yesterday kate when when you saw uh nicholas sturgeon coming out and and as you say jumping the gun to make sure that she got her lockdown in first i thought to myself and i know that for some people it, they weren't in tier four but for those of us who were 78 percent of the country in tier four you know you can't really lock much else down i mean all he's really done is shut the schools um yeah. but the rest of it hasn't really changed
4: No, I mean, the emphasis now should be on the vaccinations, getting it out. And I I wonder, you probably know more than I do on this. Are the army now involved? Because clearly we should be using every possible method of getting vaccinations, that we have them if we have them, and we're supposed to have enough to, you know, to be able to vaccinate millions. Let's get them all over the UK as quickly as possible. And rather than, you know, police out sort of wondering whether one person has come out with three people instead of one person, all of that. I think honestly, the the whole emphasis now should be on vaccinating, Shel- um, keeping the vulnerable, the people who are really at risk, obviously uh, c- keeping them as safe as possible, but allowing young people. People who, you know, I, I just so tragic. You know, people think all oh, young people don't suffer from, you know, won't, won't get mental health issues, but they are. They really are. And you talk to some young people, and they're just feeling devastated that yeah. they're. Done
1: everything. Well, that's true. I mean, my own children um, who are reasonably happy-go-lucky types. I mean, you know, in fact, the younger one who's about to turn 14 is not that upset that he can't actually go to school, bizarrely. Um, but he does miss his friends. And I mean, you know, it's one thing to say you can't go to school, but it's another thing entirely to say, and you also can't meet anyone. You know, yeah. uh, my older one when wants to, is at the age now where he sort of quite often goes up into the town and hangs out with his mates. He can't even do that.
4: Yeah. But I, I the other thing that, you know, really gets me now about all of this, the scientists, there's clearly disagreement. Even the Prime Minister himself on the um show on Sunday apart did say that, you know, there was disagreements between I think he didn't use the word disagreements, he used some other
1: better Yeah, well word. he said that they, there's no consensus, I think you said. There's no it?
4: consensus. Yeah. But he, is he actually talking to some of the people that you know? You get on your program or manage to get through uh, to, to say something on some media, although yeah. the mainstream media doesn't seem to really want to talk to anybody who's not sort of singing from the no. same hymn <laughs> sheet. And and I just worry that we're not. We've got this selected group of scientists and and, and medical experts who now almost have a you know, a a kind of feeling that they can't be proved that they've been wrong. So so they're going to keep pushing the same lockdown, lockdown. Mm. You know, as you say, what more can we lock down? Well, that's right.
1: The new narrative seems to be, and I've heard quite a few people say it now, um, uh, one of two things. One, that it hasn't worked very well because of the fact that we haven't been doing what we were told. But also, two, the reason they keep locking down is because it's the only thing that they can think of doing. They don't have any other ideas. And it seems to me that surely in a broad-based government, you would have people with some different ideas.
4: Well, I would really like to see if they've ever really sensibly looked at a, a mix of uh you know the herd immunity perhaps that word right. is the wrong word and that's kind of put people off but you know there's no doubt about it that many many of these people who are testing now are not seriously ill, or perhaps not even in the slightest ill. and yet they are having to you know be locked away that means that other people are being affected and it just seems like we should we should be trying to get uh, more and more people um either vaccinated or Having already got the immunity by being, you know, having it in a mild way. But of course, that means there are always going to be individuals at whatever age who will be, for whatever reason, and we don't know that, are going to be more seriously Mm. ill. But probably. The whole majority, 99% of the the public are being treated as if they're that 1% who are really, really vulnerable.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And here's the thing. I mean, you you retweeted yesterday that uh, a terrible call that we've just played out again today uh, from Mick, the the guy who rang into Mark Dolan's show to basically say that he was at the end of his tether bursting into tears because he's a father of five. Uh, He's an independent uh, taxi driver, an independent businessman trying to make ends meet, unable to make the kind of money uh, that he should be making, unable to get the kind of compensation that other people are getting. And it's just uh, heartbreaking, isn't it?
4: It was. I I find that really, really genuinely, the word heartbreaking is perhaps overused, but I did find that. And, you know, there must be thousands more people like that. And those very, very small, independent businesses who are just not getting any help and support and the problem too you know with the furlough scheme because the furlough scheme has been successful and a lot of people are benefiting from it you know for many of those people and, and you can't blame them they are actually sitting quite you know prettily as you would say at yes. home doing their work perhaps or for being furloughed and they're not being affected in the same way and I'm sure if they were they would be there would be a lot more people speaking out uh, like you here on your program
1: Yes I think that's absolutely right Let's talk a little bit about uh, Brexit uh, Baroness because you made your maiden speech um, very well in the House of Lords.
4: Mike, it wasn't my maiden speech. I'd already made that. It was on oh, the I'm Brexit, or no, the deal on that, on the day that we were voting finally to get rid of the transition and to accept. it. Well, the in EG. that case,
1: I apologise. I must have missed your maiden speech. I'll have to go back and find you it. Did? But, but, but listen, you 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 put it all out there because uh, you said this, and I want people to hear this because I think it's very important.
4: One other man, apart from a Prime Minister who's been absolutely instrumental in where we are today, is Nigel Farage. And the country and millions of people, whatever members of this House think, will forever hold him in its debt. Never has a man been more attacked and vilified, yet throughout he kept focused. And today, as he himself said, the war is over. I am confident that if our government and our people show positivity, vision and enterprise, we can make our country Great again and even greater.
1: It's absolutely true. And I think, um, you know, I don't know whether you've got any flack for that because I think poor old Nigel gets terribly badly treated by most of the media and by an awful lot of people in this country um, who don't realise how important he was to this entire process.
4: Oh, we would definitely not have ever had a referendum or got out of the European Union without uh, both. Nigel and, and Boris but Nigel took the flak, which Boris didn't and Nigel I wanted to mention him in the House of Lords particularly because you know the Lords are absolutely stuffed full of uh, ex-diplomats, ex-Mandarins, ex-people and so many of them getting EU pensions yeah. and there was a, even at the very last minute you know last week there was that reluctance by so many of them to just accept that it was all happening and they had got a deal even if it wasn't totally perfect Mm -hmm. and and i just thought nigel deserved and actually funny enough after i'd mentioned him one or two other peers did mention him as well and um you know i i i felt that was an important thing
5: to do
1: Absolutely right. And you also mentioned in your speech the civil servants and the kind of culture uh, at the civil service that has been uh, probably putting roadblocks in at every possible opportunity to Brexit actually happening. So it's a real tribute, actually, to Boris Johnson and his government as well that they did manage to finally get this over the line. Well,
4: I, th- I think it is because there's no doubt about it during the last, uh, since the referendum, a lot of the civil servants just couldn't really accept that we were leaving. And while they might have said that they were working hard to make it happen. We know that behind the scenes, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of them who really at the very senior level who mm. still hoped, even Lord Care that I mentioned in my speech, who, who, who actually said about a year ago that, oh, you know, we'll huff and puff and then in the end, we will come to heel. Even he was saying that, you know, Article 50 could be revoked and we should start to think again. All of those things. Right. And I think for me, the important thing now is our civil service has to now accept that they don't have the European Union there to blame. They have to now actually get their act together and change the whole culture in the civil service that, that, that allows people to actually think differently and not always feel that you have to go, you know, taw, kowtow to the European Union commissioners. So I think the civil service is in for a big shock, and maybe that's a good thing.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And there was an absolute kind of um, feeling of disappointment, wasn't there? You could see it in their faces on television um, on January the 1st when, uh, you know, the news crews were down at over looking for there to be terrible things happening people sort of you know throwing themselves under lorries with despair and when they discovered actually things were running quite smoothly um, there was a sort of tantamount feeling of disappointment uh, all over the place
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you yourself said or someone said they they couldn't send anyone down to see all the the, the migrants coming across on the boats that took Nigel for hours to do that. But then as soon as this looked like they might get a story of negativity. And, uh, you know, you even got the feeling sometimes in the the way some of the newscasters were reading the story that they were actually disappointed, Mm. you know. Oh, sure. And um, again, you know, that's the whole... Particularly the media that we pay for, the BBC, there has to be a shake-up, and if one of my campaigns in the coming year, and not personally, but to be supporting, is is to actually get, first of all, the licence fee, which it looks like the government's going to renege on, mm. making it, Ill, um, you know, not a criminal offence, and then actually to look at. The whole way the BBC is is funded because it just isn't acceptable that if I don't want to watch it, but I want to watch another mainstream pro television channel, I have to pay a licence fee.
1: I know, absolutely shocking. Baroness Howie, a delight to see you. Delightful to have you there from Rathlin. A little bit windy, so apologies for the uh, the dodgy sound at times. But thank you so much. Have a great New Year. Uh, have a great Brexit. Have a great January. Uh, we will do the best we can uh, to keep everybody's spirits up. I know it's not to be difficult. It's going to be tough, but we're here for you here at Talk Radio. There is nothing like us out there. Mid-morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we've spoken to a few people today who have been a bit unsure about what is going on with their school. Uh, As of last night, of course, Boris Johnson pretty much closed all schools uh, from now until sometime in the middle of February. So we're going to continue with something we started last year uh, in the first lockdown, which is homeschooling, because we find uh, an awful lot of parents at home uh, who are struggling one way or another because either they've got to work from home as well as trying to teach their kids or they're kind of trying to corral some children to make them do some academic work uh, whether it's being set by the school or not so today uh, we bring you just after the news at 12.30 the latest homeschooling subject which is Hadrian's Wall and we're going to talk to Dr Francis McIntosh the curator uh, of Hadrian's Wall Uh, and for those of you uh, who can't surely not know what this is, uh, it is of course the wall that was built uh, by the Romans between Scotland and England. Uh, I hope I'm not going to have to be corrected. Dr. Francis, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Happy New Year.
5: Happy New Year. I'm afraid um, read red pen already on that uh, no. first homework.
1: <laughs> Sorry, what did I get wrong?
5: Um, so, it does not and never has um, been the line between England and Scotland um, at, at, at any point. Really? I mean, not, no, no. It's, um, I thought one the, of the Romans
1: built it to keep the Picts out.
5: Well... But England and Scotland didn't really exist then um, and it wasn't a boundary before the Romans decided that, that would be the line of the boundary right, okay. um, it was to keep the kind of general what the Romans would call barbarians who are north of the wall north of the empire right um out but also it wasn't quite as simple there was lots and lots of ways you could get through the wall legally or you know there were um gates through the wall so it's not quite as simple as just stopping people getting through
1: yes well I blame my father for my lack of uh, knowledge on this because he was a Scotsman and he told me that the Picts were a very fearsome race of, uh, of warriors and that the Romans could not invade Scotland and that was where their empire ended and that was where they had to keep them out
5: well that's not untrue um when the romans uh, landed in britain in 43 ad their aim was to conquer the whole of the island and they did go quite far up into scotland mm. but when hadrian came to power in 117 he was 117 ad he was um, the emperor who kind of known as consolidating his boundaries and right. so he decided to set the line that is hadrian's wall although his successor antoninus pius the emperor after him decided to have another go and he moved troops up and they built the antonine wall which is up in scotland right uh runs kind of Edinburgh to Glasgow line but that only lasted about 20 years before they moved back to Hadrian's wall
1: and we're looking at some pictures as we speak uh, Francis of the of of the remains of the wall there's quite a bit of it left isn't there
5: yeah there is so when the Romans built it it was 80 Roman miles or 73 modern miles long we've lost lots of the eastern section where we've got the big conurbation of Newcastle um and lots of the western section has gone but that central sector that visitors will be um, more familiar with is some of it's really quite spectacular still.
1: Yes, it really does look great. And and as far as the actual kind of remains of of, of of it, does it I mean does it go all the way across? I mean I know you said there's various places where you could get through it, but does it actually go kind of from one side of the coastline to the other?
5: Yes, so when the Romans built it it ran from Bowness on Solway in the west through to Walls End in the east and it was a continuous line. There was um forts spaced out along the line. Um, there were lots of different types of plans when the Romans first set off it's quite like a modern construction plan now they said we'll build a wall and it will have a mile castle every Roman mile then in between each mile castle there'll be two turrets so every third of the mile there was something Mm. and at every mile castle so there's 81 mile castles there was a gate to get through Um, and after a few years the plan changed and they put forts onto the wall um, sometimes on top of where they'd already put foundations of mile castles so you can imagine the soldiers building the wall, cursing those up high, yes. changing the plans. <laughs>
1: yes, I'm sure. And I mean, it's quite a, a structure, isn't it? So where did they get all the material from? Was it all locally kind of quarried?
5: That's right. So moving material is one of the most costly um, kind of aspects of a job, and particularly when you're building in stone, which eventually the whole wall was built in stone, but at least half of it was always originally planned to be built in stone. Mm. And that was quarried from as locally as possible. So... Um, we've got evidence for Roman quarries um, dotted along Hadrian's wall, um, and some recent work found um, at the Rock of Gelt, the written Rock of Gelt found lots and lots more Roman inscriptions on quarries. So mm. they found it as close to the wall as possible. And how long did it take to construct? They started about 122 AD, that's when the kind of written sources say Hadrian came to visit, and it took at least six years to build the wall but they were still making modifications when hadrian died in 138 so that's right. 16 years mm. so it's a huge undertaking
1: and your job as a curator up there what what does that involve i'm looking at your website um and it's obviously a visiting a visitors attraction but not at the moment i would be guessing
5: no so i'm a collections curator and i look after um the collections and the sites that english heritage manages. so all the things you'll see in the museum. So I look after the objects are on display in the museum, but also in our store and help um, kind of tell stories of the site through the objects. Right. I do, you know, a lot of the stuff that's on the website that you'll find. There's lots of lovely articles. We've had objects 3D scanned so people can see them in detail. So all sorts of things that people can still find out about the collections even while we're closed.
1: Yes. And there's lots of sort of artwork involved in it as well, isn't there?
5: Oh yeah, we've got some beautiful sculpture on the wall. Um, Chester's Museum and the Clayton Collection has got um, sculpture from all sorts of different deities and gods and goddesses. And then we have beautiful jewellery, really ornate uh, examples of metalworking, whether that's in silver or gold or copper alloy and enamel. So it was not just all about soldiers and the kind of the mucky job of Mm. um, defending an empire. It was whole communities living up on the wall using pottery, decorating their houses and themselves with beautiful things.
1: Right, and people talk about the Roman Empire sort of dissolving because they spread out maybe a little bit too far from home and they'd started to get attacked in their home of Rome, in, in a way. And so Hadrian's Wall probably was, I'm assuming, more at the end of the Roman Empire than it, than it was anything.
5: Um, also, the Roman Empire kind of you know spread obviously massively. Hadrian's Wall was a northwestern frontier right. of the empire um, and started about 122 AD and officially Roman Britain ceased to be part of the empire in 410 AD. But We know it's not quite as simple as that and that the forts were occupied for a bit longer than that and it was more of a gradual decline. Yeah.
1: And as far as um, walking along it, can you actually walk along it? Is it is it okay to do that?
5: So we um, advise you not to walk on the top of the wall other than at one small section because that um really can damage the wall but mm. there is actually a path that runs from um one end to the other entire uh, length alongside the wall and it's the Havenswall Wall National Trail and it's a really lovely uh, long distance walk that lots mm. of people do obviously in normal circumstances
1: okay and you haven't been contacted by any mad Scottish nationalists who want to build it up higher have you
5: um no there were obviously some
1: <laughs> that's obviously wind- a joke question
5: Yeah, when Scottish referendum came around, you know, you do get people making statements. But no, we're definitely not anywhere near the Scottish border. people I'm I'm down, you know, um, Newcastle's a long way from the Scottish border. Mm. It really is.
1: It really is. Funnily enough, I mean, some people have suggested moving the Scottish border a bit further north so that, you know, you would definitely then not really be that near it at all. But but I guess as English heritage, you would have to remain um, English anyway.
5: Yes, we look after, you know, four hundred plus sites all across England, not just, you know, Hadrian's right. Wall.
1: And just I mean, just as an aside, I know this is not really um any of my business, but I mean if you if you aren't allowed to to have people visit because of the restrictions, does that does that harm you financially?
5: Yeah, the you know, COVID pandemic has been a huge challenge for all as so it has all the heritage organizations. We've had to um really look at our business model. Mm. We lots of our staff went on furlough, but we had a very good um you know brilliant social media team who kept our presence up and we're now planning and all of our um teams are back and we're planning for when we can reopen um and you know fingers crossed again that the vaccine comes through and we can reopen yeah. and welcome visitors back again
1: well hopefully when it gets a bit warmer perhaps as well cause it'll be a bit chilly on ages of at the moment i would imagine
5: It is rather chilly today, there's some, um, you know, spectacular views, which is a shame for people to miss, but no, we had a brilliant summer and we were really pleased that people could come back over the summer Mm. and, yeah we just have to weather the storm really yes
1: absolutely well delightful to talk to you thanks so much for educating me on that i shall uh, i shall go away now knowing something that i didn't know before which is the whole point of uh, of homeschooling dr francis mackintosh curator of hadrian's wall thank you very much indeed talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio